Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty darn good. How about you, Sarah? I am also doing pretty darn good, which bodes well for the rest of the year. Hey, 2023. Happy New Year. Yay. I think it's good to remind ourselves of what year it is because... Tonight's movie, we have visited a few times now. Bit of a throwback. Yeah. Um, Should I publish this episode on Thursday instead if it's a throwback? (laughs) No, no, no. Let's stick to the regular schedule. Okay. Okay. What what are we watching, Ben? So tonight, Sarah, we are watching The Bat from 1959. Mm. And yes, it is another adaptation version repetition iteration of the bat a story that we were very familiar with in the early days of the podcast due to not only its direct film adaptations but kind of like the genre of imitators it spawned Mm -hmm. but that was so long ago that was like 30 years ago (laughs) um sort of so can you like jog my memory about the bat absolutely so we are in 1959 right now the first time we encountered the bat was with its 1926 silent film adaptation uh which was back in episode 16 woof also back in like 2017 Ooh. so six years ago for the podcast 29 years since The film was made for this remake to come out, but it's also been about 50 years in terms of it being 1959, 50 years since the novel came out. Right. So let's cast our minds back. All of this is thanks to a novel that was published periodically and then collected into a novel called The Circular Staircase, uh, a 1908 novel by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. So if you have any problems with any of these movies, you can blame her. Got it. She was trained as a nurse, but after the 1903 market crash, she decided to try out writing as a side hustle, Mm -hmm. and she was really heckin' good at it. Uh, She had major success as a writer of mysteries. She was a journalist covering World War I from the Belgian front lines. Like She has done a lot of really amazing things. But she's primarily known as a mystery writer. She was kind of called the American Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. And this novel, The Circular Staircase, is like one of the key examples of this, uh, I'll say trope or like subgenre of mystery novels that came with this like, had I but known kind of foreshadowing structure. Right. So the idea of like, Typically, a female protagonist or narrator going, had I but known then what I know now, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. The Circular Staircase follows a wealthy widow trying to solve crimes around the summer house that she is renting with her niece and nephew. It was a really big hit. And about, you know, eight years after it was published, Reinhardt started wondering if a mystery novel would work as a play. She had already started adapting some of her previous pieces of work that weren't necessarily mysteries into plays. And so she's like, well, will this work? And so she started adapting Circular Staircase alongside a playwright named Avery Hopwood, who they had worked together before. And out came the 1920 play, The Bat. Mm. The reason for the name change is there was a 1915 film called The Circular Staircase, no relation, but because of that name and confusion around copyright, etc., they changed the name to The Bat, and the play was a big hit. It had a total of 867 New York performances in its first run, and it's been revived twice on Broadway. It was a really big deal. Kind of key to, I think, how Reinhardt saw a mystery working as a play is at the end of the play someone comes out and is like, hey, 
don't spoil this for other people. Don't tell people what the twist is mm. and who the killer is because mm. then no one will have such a good time like you had tonight. Right. Uh, and that, hey, don't spoil it, continues through all of the adaptations. Right. In the 1920 play, we see, as an audience member, like we see what the characters don't. And that's where the horror comes from, but that's also where a lot of the comedy comes from. And, you know, it adapts the novel pretty closely. It's a whodunit in this house where there's a figure known as the Bat who's, like, stalking our characters, uh, kind of centered around this old dowager. It's a big hit play. So, of course, Hollywood goes, hey, we want in on that. And so the 1926 film adaptation is conceived and completed by Roland West, which, uh, will you be talking about Roland West at all? He's a pretty big character. If you want to hear more about Roland West and also this backstory, you can go and listen to episode 16. Uh, we will sound very different. That is six <laughs> years ago. We really liked The Bat from 1926. It is currently ranked, after all of the other movies, it is currently ranked number 177. But that's not bad for a silent film. Mm. Uh, which is very dated as well. We praised its mood, uh, its use of German expressionism, the lighting, the moving camera, but we did comment on Roland West being very inspired in uh, how this film was shown uh, by Paul Lenny's Cat and the Canary, mm. uh, which is ranked much higher than The Bat. It's, uh, again, pretty close to the play, to the novel. And the basic plot beats are, you know, everyone's in this house. Uh, the bat is some kind of thief who is on the loose and has some kind of connection to this house. You can kind of think of it as like, you know, s storing his stolen goods in the house um, or trying to break in to find a safe. So that's why you keep hearing like these spooky sounds around the house because it's the bat creeping around. Some people get killed, so that brings in the police. You meet this police officer in the play. Uh, his name is Mr. Anderson, like Detective Anderson. Mm -hmm. Mr. Anderson. <laughs> in the 1926 film, uh, the detective's name is different. Detective Maletti. Right, because anti-Italian sentiment. Yes, I think you can point to that in this case for this 1926 film. As everyone's running around and you're not quite sure who could be the bat or where is the bat, uh, the garage gets set on fire. And as they are pulling like this unconscious man from it, uh, he awakens and he breaks through amnesia and says like, but I'm Detective Anderson or Maletti. And the person who has been pretending to be Anderson or Maletti turns out to have been the bat. Got it. So that's the basic structure of it. Again, like I said, the silent film hits those same beats, but it changes the name to Maletti, uh, both, I think, because of that anti-Italian sentiment to like further the, like, oh, no, turns out he's the good guy. But also, for anyone who is familiar with the book, you wouldn't immediately go, oh, Anderson, he's the bad guy. Hmm. This film was hugely successful, and four years later, when sound equipment became more viable but also it's the great depression so film studios really want to get butts in seats they decide to remake the bat into the bat whispers which is a sound remake and is also one of the first films in widescreen it's again directed by roland west and again at the end they say no spoilers it's this time they reset the name to be mr or sorry detective anderson Ultimately, though, we decided that The Bat Whispers was not as good as The Bat because it felt like it didn't have any style. Like many early sound films, um, you see the director and the crew struggling a little bit to bring in the same kind of style that they had with like, camera movement and such while dealing with the limitation that the sound equipment provided. And then couple that with the fact that now suddenly... West is having to deal with widescreen, which in this early form required two cameras on set. So it's it's a lot. Mm -hmm. I think the widescreen was a good idea because then you could replicate the, like, we see something that the characters don't. But ultimately, the tech became a bit more of a burden than a boon to the picture. And we also found that there was a lot of imbalance between comedy and horror 
with the bat whispers. The bat also had that balancing act. Uh, it's kind of a, a characteristic of early horror, but it's particularly bad in the bat whispers. Um, and so we ultimately ranked it. Uh, currently, it's at number 180, so three spots below the silent bat. Uh, if you want to hear more about the bat whispers, as well as like the context around the Great Depression, which I go into detail about in that episode, that's episode 23. So that's the history of the bat. Do you know why they're remaking it now? I have a theory. Okay, but... let's let's hear the theory. Okay, so Mary Roberts Reinhardt, the author, hmm. she, like I said, was a really big deal. She was the U.S. Agatha Christie. She died in 1958. Oh. At age 82. Interesting. So I think the idea of her passing away might have, you know, jogged someone's memory of like, oh, hey, the bat, what if we remade that? I think it's also worth noting that in 1947, she had an interview in Ladies Home Journal uh, where she talked about having cancer and particularly breast cancer and really became an advocate for breast health and getting checked out. And in 1956, she was on the interview television program Person to Person. So she's been in the news through the decades. Uh, so I think that might be why now. Hmm. So I didn't run into anything about that, but the idea that like she passed away and that made someone go like, oh yeah, um, could be true. Um, but I didn't run into that uh, when I was looking things up. Also being on person to person, like that was a very popular show, right? Mm -hmm. um, I will say just so that we don't get any tweets about it. Uh, the most famous like little bit of trivia thing about the bat nowadays tends to be like, it inspired Batman. And well, you and I both know that that's not true. Yeah. Like at the most, the silent version has like a scene where like the bat projects an image of a bat like on a wall to like spook people that is somewhat similar to the bat signal. Mm -hmm. That's kind of it. And in the bat whispers, I think he wears like a mask that looks like a big like bat head. Um, and that's about it. The rest of Batman comes from Zorro or the shadow. I did also see a lot of talk about how the 1926 silent film was a very early influencer on the slasher genre. Hmm. And I would say probably not besides the idea of like a group of people in a house being stalked. Yeah. I think you can point to better examples as an early influencer than yes. this film. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's just that there's a large cast and they kind of get picked off. Yeah. The main reason that I found for why the bat mostly had to do with the fact that Hammer had had success bringing back gothic horror. Mm -hmm. And William Castle had had success with House on Haunted Hill kind of bringing back the like old dark house mm. genre. And so it was like, oh, maybe like we can be bringing back these old things and kind of, you know, revamping them for modern times. That was kind of the the impetus, right? It's like if we can make Frankenstein popular again, if we can make the old dark house popular again, like maybe we can make the bat popular again. It's also been about 30 years, which isn't there usually that kind of cyclical, let's remake something that I saw as a child. Kind yeah, of thing? yeah, for sure. So... The original film versions of The Bat had been produced for United Artists. So the guy who was interested in doing the remake, who kind of had this idea, was a producer named C.J. Tevlin, and he was working for RKO. So he was interested in producing a remake, so he bought the film rights for The Bat from Mary Pickford. Now, in the late 1950s, the once venerable RKO was in severe trouble mm -hmm. um howard hughes had sold rko to the general tire and rubber company in 1955 and the general tire and rubber company bought rko because they had been buying radio stations and tv stations all over the place they had a controlling interest in the mutual broadcasting system which was one of the big radio networks of the time and they had all these like east coast television stations so General Tire used the RKO movie library to program their TV stations. So that led in the late 50s to movies like Citizen Kane and King Kong being seen on wide rotation on TV for the first time. So, you know, a lot of people's 
a lot of baby boomers, like first exposure to those movies came from them being shown on TV in this period. Oh, uh, yes. On the, what would it be, like 20-inch television screen? The yeah. The ideal way to watch Citizen Kane or King Kong? Maybe like 12-inch <laughs> television screen. Um, so for TV stations that General Tire did not own, what they did was they sold the rights to RKO's movie library for $15.2 million. Whoa. And this was actually like a big deal in Hollywood because it was a major thing signaling all the other studios that your library had value mm. to be sold for like TV rights and like these ancillary rights. Now, as for new production of films at RKO, attempts were made uh, to revitalize the studio. General Tire brought in William Dozier uh, to head up RKO. Uh, he would later go on to produce the 1966 Batman television yes, series. That's how I'm familiar with him. Yeah. But they had a problem, which was that there was like a number of big budget films from the Hughes days that were like still in production when they inherited the studio, um, including The Conqueror, which if you don't know what The Conqueror is, uh, it's a film where John Wayne plays Genghis Khan and it is exactly as bad as you are picturing. But the other thing about The Conqueror is it was shot in the Nevada desert, downwind of the nuclear test facilities. You get cancer. You get cancer. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets cancer. Now, The Conqueror was actually RKO's biggest box office hit of the 1950s. It made something like, uh, I want to say, like $4.5 million at the box office. But the problem was it had cost $9 million. Oh, no. So these like big budget films that the studio had to finish, left over from the Hughes days, put it in like huge amounts of debt. And so in 1957, General Tire announced that RKO would no longer be distributing films. And then soon afterwards, General Tire announced that RKO would no longer be producing films either. They sold the studio lot to Desilu Productions. Mm. However, in 1958, RKO announced that they would continue to be a financier of independent films. So like you want to get your film made, you're like a little indie company. We're going to put money into it in exchange for a cut of the box office. And then someone else will distribute. Um, so we don't, we don't make anything. We don't release anything. We just pump some money into things. I presume then they would also have some right to show it on television. Mm, as well. Indeed. Now this resulted in an output of less than half a dozen movies before the studio's final film, Verboten, in 1959, which was a co-production with Samuel Fuller's Globe Enterprises and was released by Columbia. The company was then renamed RKO General, and it basically just became a holding company for the like rights to RKO movies. So this collapse of RKO resulted in C.J. Tevlin deciding to take the rights he had bought to the bat to Liberty Pictures, which was a Poverty Row production company that at one time had been part of the Republic Pictures mm. banner. He worked with Liberty Pictures to create this new version, which was then going to be distributed by Allied Artists, which was one of the major like indie Poverty Row distributors of the time. Yeah. To write and direct this new version of The Bat, Tevlin hired Crane Wilbur, a very old hand at this sort of thing. Very old. Very, very old. Crane Wilbur was born in 1886 in New York. Uh, he was a cousin of Tyrone Power, and he actually began in movies as an actor, appearing in numerous silent films starting in 1910, his biggest role was probably the lead male role in the very popular 1914 serial, The Perils of Pauline. Around 1921, he dropped out of appearing in films uh, in order to pursue a stage career, which he felt was like more fulfilling. Basically, in order to ensure that he had a stage career, he would write his own plays oh. to star in. With the massive popularity of The Bat, stage play in 1920 wilbur wrote his own old dark house mystery thriller uh which he called the monster yes which he starred in starting in 1924 in 1925 the monster was adapted by roland west into a horror comedy 
And then the success of The Monster in 1925 led Roland West to adapt The Bat in 1926. Wilbur's uh, writing career kind of continued into the 30s and 40s, now doing film screenplays. Uh, he wrote the story for The Amazing Mr. X in 1948, and he also wrote the screenplays for House of Wax in 1953 and The Mad Magician in 1954. Another connection to Vincent Price. Indeed. So having starred in two previous Crane Wilbur pictures, Vincent Price agreed to appear in The Bat, primarily because, um, so Price was born in 1911, and the original play had, like, scared him as a kid, uh, so he had these, like, memories of how good the original play was, and he was looking forward to, like, seeing, like, how were they going to modernize it, right? He was very excited about that. That's uh, funny, because I'm very excited that they can replicate maybe, uh, Vincent Price's arms from the Mad Magician in the back. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> At the end of the day, Price was ultimately very disappointed with the final script, which he felt was very old-fashioned. But, you know, he's a professional, so he appears in the movie anyway. The film scored another sort of casting coup in the casting of three-time Academy Award nominee Agnes Moorhead in the lead role of Cornelia Von Gorder, the old dowager who solves mysteries, who's the lead character of the story, right? Agnes Moorhead was born in 1900, in Massachusetts, she was the daughter of a singer and a clergyman, and she knew she wanted to be an actress from a very young age. She earned a biology degree in 1923, uh, but she acted in like college plays throughout her education. Um, after graduating, she taught public school for five years while she was earning a master's degree in English. And then after getting her master's degree, she did post-grad studies at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which she graduated from in 1929. Her early acting days were unsteady. Um, she was unable to find regular work on stage or on film where she was told that she wasn't the right type. Instead, she found success on radio where she trained her voice to portray all kinds of different characters. And in 1937, she joined Orson Welles' Mercury Theater and appeared regularly on their radio show. She also starred opposite Wells in The Shadow as Margot Lane. When Wells went to Hollywood, he brought his Mercury players with him, so Moorhead appeared in her first film role as the mother of the title character in Citizen Kane in 1941. She then appeared as Fanny Minifer in Wells's The Magnificent Ambersons, for which she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She also appeared in the Mercury film production of Journey into Fear in 1943, and that same year she appeared with Wells in Jane Eyre. When Wells' star in Hollywood fell, it kind of had a knock-on effect to many of his performers, and Wells always felt that Moorhead did not get the recognition as an actress that she deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, she received another Best Supporting Actress nomination in 1944 for Mrs. Parkington, and she carved out sort of a successful career as like a character actress on film, radio, and television, playing like spinsters and villains and, and these sorts of characters. After doing The Bat, her best-known late-career role was as Endora, Samantha's mother on the 1964-1972 sitcom Bewitched, for which she received six Emmy nominations. Uh, in 1964, she also appeared in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, uh, for which she earned a fourth Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. And she passed away in 1974 from uterine cancer caused by radiation exposure from shooting The Conqueror. Now, the role of comic relief character Lizzie Allen, who is Cornelia Von Gorder's... Um, Maid. You were very quick on that. <laughs> I was going to use the word companion. Well, in all of the adaptations, she's called a maid. Yes. The fact that um, Agnes Moorhead was probably a lesbian, at the very least bisexual certainly like adds to the vibe that Lizzie is her uh, companion, we'll say. But regardless, in this film, uh, Lizzie Allen is played by Crane Wilbur's wife, actress Lenita Lane, who also appeared in The Mad Magician. After a career dating all the way back to 1931, she would retire from acting after the bat, passing away in 1995, 
long after Crane Wilbur, who passed away of a stroke in 1973. In fact, almost the entire cast of The Bat is made up of, like, Hollywood veterans with careers dating back to the 1930s. Um, However, while most of the cast is in their 50s or older, there is one Hollywood veteran of the 1930s uh, who wasn't even 30 when she appeared in this film. Darla Hood was born in 1931, but she began acting in 1935 in the R Gang comedy shorts, Uh. also known as Little Rascals, where she played Darla, uh, one of the main characters, until she aged out of the shorts in 1941. As a teen, she began a singing career, and this was kind of like the main thing she did as an adult was kind of this recording career. Um, But she was a regular on television through the 50s and 60s as a guest performer. The Bat is, in fact, her final film role as an actress. Okay. She passed away unexpectedly in 1979 from complications following an appendectomy. Mm. Um, She had heart failure uh, because the blood used for the blood transfusion in the procedure had hepatitis. Shit. So uh, The Bat was released on August 9th, 1959. It was received modestly, we will say. I mean, that's better than poorly. Most audiences (laughs) stayed away in favor of more modern fare. And eventually, um, the film, in order to, like, get some sort of return on investment, was added as a B-picture to the release of the hammer horror film The Mummy, which came out later in 1959 in the U.S. Okay. That kind of makes sense. You know, The Mummy, also a remake. Yeah. Uh, The film has since fallen into the public domain. Uh, So you can find all kinds of copies of it in all kinds of different quality levels, just sort of everywhere. Like if you just sort of trip into a bargain bin of movies, you'll find a few copies of The Bat. I grew up seeing The Bat on VHS from a bad public domain copy. It has a fairly, like, middling critical reception these days. There are people who are like, it's old-fashioned and bad. And there are other people who are like, it's campy and fun. So, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, The Blu-ray release that I'm going to recommend is from Film Detective. Uh, They did a pretty good restoration. And they also have that restoration up on their YouTube page for free. Oh, sweet. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, you can find our YouTube playlist on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Bat from 1959, directed by Crane Wilbur. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone. We just finished watching The Bat from 1959, directed by Crane Wilbur. Sarah, what'd you think? Uh, I think I agree with the reviews of this movie. Hmm. <laughs> Old-fashioned, little tired. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. What did you think? So I actually thought this was kind of fun. I had a good time watching this. Um, depending on what you're looking for, I think this might be the best movie version of The Bat. Oh, it absolutely is. And that's because it finds a way to balance the comedy and horror. It's probably the tightest the story has ever been. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a whodunit that is not Knives Out or Glass Onion, (laughs) um, that's more in the line of like a horror movie than cool. It's It's got the vibe of, like, you know, seeing, I mean, appropriately, it's got the vibe of, like, kind of seeing a play you've already seen before, but, like, done well. Yeah. You're like, this is fun and comforting. Like, I know what this is, and I'm enjoying myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It was a fine movie. So, it was whatever. So why don't we talk about the plot line of this specific version? Yeah. Because each version has had 
little differences, like from version to version. Yeah. So let me run through the character list because that's going to be the easiest way to keep these people apart. Mm -hmm. We have Cornelia Van Gorder, who um, sometimes is called Miss Corny Hmm. by her maid companion, Lizzie Allen. Um, So, you know, she has a nickname. Well, they fucking... Uh, Then we have... (laughs) All of their servants get scared off uh, by, like, the spooky happenings in the movie, in the house, except for their chauffeur, Warner, who, um, because he's the only one left, gets promoted to be their butler. We have Lieutenant Anderson, who everyone calls Andy. We have Dr. Wells, who is Vincent Price. Then we have John Fleming, who is president of a bank and the owner of the house. And then we have his nephew, Mark Fleming, who is not associated with the bank. He's like a real estate agent, but he manages renting out the house called like the the Oaks. Okay, so Cornelia and Lizzie have rented the Oaks for the summer from Mark Fleming. Mark has not told his uncle about this. He kind of rented it on the sly. While Cornelia and Lizzie are there, um, they happen to go to the town bank, which, as I said, is run by John Fleming, but he's not here. He's out on his own like little vacation. But they do meet the vice president of the bank, Victor Bailey, and his new wife, Dale. And this is also where they happen to meet Anderson. He's in the bank. He's, you know, friends with these people, whatever. The reason why it's a big deal for these people to meet Cornelia is because she is a famous author. She's an Agatha Christie. Yes. She's a Mary Roberts Reinhardt. (laughs) There you go. Who is an Agatha Christie? Mm -hmm. At one point, Bailey pulls Dale and Anderson aside to say, like, I was just checking the bank. And we have like a million dollars of assets missing in like bonds and golden parachutes. I don't know. Securities. (laughs) Insecurities. So that's like a core part of the mystery. Next, we cut to Mark Fleming and Dr. Wells out on a hunting trip. Now, John and Dr. Wells have been friends for a while. And John starts explaining this like plan he had of stealing money from his own bank and um basically you know help fake my death so i can get away with this money and half the money is yours dr wells and dr wells is like wow really like where are we going to get a body what what's going on and then suddenly they're surrounded by forest fire and in the midst of all that, Dr. Wells is like, well, I won't have to find a body, and then shoots John. Yeah, it's like, well, Doc, you can help me fake my death and split the money. And it's like, or I can just kill you and have the money. Dr. Wells has been told the whole thing of like, you know, this was all put into cash. It's stored in a secret room in my house, but he doesn't know where that room is. We cut back to the town and the old house. Um, and we learned that Bailey has been arrested. Uh, we also learned from a lot of newspaper reading from Lizzie that the bat is a serial killer who has been on the loose in the town. He killed people in this exact house last winter. Um, this is kind of why all of the servants get spooked away. Um, also, there's like rabid bats in this area. And there's a rumor that it was the bat himself who let loose the rabid actual bats now dale who was bailey's new wife um she and her friend judy are at the house with cornelia and lizzie um just you know being guests or whatever and dale's like yeah like my husband i I can't believe he would do this like this isn't like him at all uh and judy has um some testimony that is going to like change the course of the trial um but she can't say what it is because you know law or whatever Now, you skipped a thing, because a lot of things happen, and I missed it. But during that previous night, Lizzie and Cornelia were home alone, and an intruder was going around the house, and we see that the intruder lets a bat into their room, and Lizzie gets bit. And so they call Dr. Wells to come get rabies treatment. Um, We see Dr. Wells' lab, and he has a bunch of bats around um, because it seems like he's studying the rabies infection. So he comes back the next morning as the ladies are entertaining Dale and Judy and hears about Judy's testimony and also 
you know, is checking up to make sure Lizzie is, is feeling okay. Now, as a mystery thriller writer, uh, Cornelia is like, well, if it wasn't Bailey, I would surmise that whoever it was, if it was like the bat or something, probably hid that stolen money in this house. Like, that's why they would be so focused on getting into this house. So there might be a secret room. We should maybe try to get blueprints to figure out where the secret room is. They call up Mark Fleming, who is with Lieutenant Anderson at the time, asking for the blueprints. Mark says, oh yeah, I think that the house will come over later and we can try to find them. It's just about dinner time and we have Cornelia, Lizzie, Dale, and Judy all finishing up supper. And we see that Mark does indeed come to the house, but he starts sneaking around trying to find the blueprints. And we see the bat following after him and kills Mark just as he finds the blueprints in a hidden little closet behind, uh, behind a grandfather clock. The ladies uh, discover the body. They call in the police. So Anderson comes. Dr. Wells comes. And you can tell that there's a lot of like unspoken tension between Dr. Wells and Anderson. They both seem suspicious of each other. And then that suspicion grows when Anderson meets Warner because he seems to think that he has met Warner somewhere before. Maybe he's a crook. Maybe I've seen him in the wanted paper something like that. But Anderson calms the ladies down, says, you know, stay in your rooms. I'll have a man down here watching the doors. Um, But if you stay in your rooms, nothing bad could happen. That night, we see that the bat sneaks in and he starts like hammering some holes in like the top floor attic walls. Everyone wakes up to this. Um, Dale and Judy go to investigate. They sneak up on the bat. And uh, in that confrontation, Judy is killed murdered. Anderson arrives, sees the dead body, and suspects Warner because Warner isn't around. Cornelia had managed to like throw a fire poker at the bat as he was running away, and um, Dr. Wells shows up saying like, yeah, my car just got into an accident, and he has a, a gash on his head where a fire poker maybe hit him. Maybe it was from the crash. Next thing we see, Cornelia is giving notes to Dale. Um, like speaking and Dale is taking notes and she kind of says like and then later that night I did some investigating of my own and we go to a flashback of that night well basically we don't really figure this out until the end of the movie but like she's dictating this to her after all the events of the rest of the movie have occurred which I guess is what gives this part of the movie the um if only I had known like structure that would be more that should have come at the beginning mm. in the narration sure um because we do get that narration okay so cornelia is giving these notes we flash back and cornelia is doing her own investigation and looking around uh this hole in the attic and she discovers the secret room now it happens to close and she gets trapped inside everyone kind of wakes up hearing like her knocking around and we meet um Lieutenant Davenport, who is a policeman who we have never seen before, but his name is Davenport, which is wonderful. He, along with everyone else, uh, everyone being Lizzie and Dale, go up and they find Cornelia. And this is when suddenly we cut to seeing Dr. Wells's office, his little lab. We see that the bat is there and he's writing a note saying like, it was me and I've killed myself or something like that. Suddenly, Dr. Wells sneaks up on the bat He's like, haha, you thought you'd pin it on me that I was the bat, but you were the bat all along, and now I have a gun on you and I'm going to shoot you. This is it's much better in the script, trust me. <laughs> they fight, and Vincent Price gets murdered. Sorry. Dr. Wells gets murdered. Mm-hmm. And the bat escapes. We cut back to everyone at the old manor house, and suddenly the garage is on fire, and Cornelia is like, ah, but that's probably a diversion so that the bat can get us out and he can get access to the safe. So they hide, the bat comes in and they try to jump him, but Davenport gets shot dead and suddenly the bat has all of the ladies stuck in the corner with a gun pointed at them. And he speaks and he's like, ah, now I shall kill you and get the money. When suddenly the bat is shot from behind into the back by... 
Warner. So you're like, okay, well, Vincent Price is dead. Mm-hmm. Warner shot the bat. So who could the bat be? Ah, the other tall man in this picture, Anderson. And then we cut back to uh, Cornelia dictating her notes to Dale. Says something along the lines of like, ah, it was all very clever, but you just can't get away with murder. She looks directly into the camera. Um, and that's the end. Ben, that's a lot. Mm. I tried to keep things fairly straight. Is there anything that I might have skipped over or skimmed that you want to mention? Yeah, so um, the only thing that really is important that you didn't mention, uh, that the movie does like a pretty good job of keeping subtle but making sure is in there, is when we first meet Detective Anderson, he mentions that like he's on the board for the bank. And we later find out this is because that he has bought like tons and tons of bonds and securities with the bank with his savings. So like all of his life savings are tied up in the bank's like paper assets. And so when those all get embezzled by John Fleming um, in order to, because John's stealing them, that's why like Anderson needs to find that money because it's like all his money. And we later find out that it's all of his like ill-gotten goods from his years as the bat secretly. So that sort of brings me to one of the things I really like about this version. Yeah. Which is that everything makes sense. Yeah. There's no like weird thing that comes out of nowhere that like the movie was keeping secret purposefully to try to trick you. I'll I'll say that I agree that everything makes sense with an asterisk because you know the thing that doesn't make sense? Mm. Why Cornelia and Lizzie don't just leave. Oh, that's easy because Cornelia is a like book author who thinks this is all super cool and interesting. After Judy dies, uh, like, I mean, that's there's fair. enough that happens sure. that they should just be like, yeah, let's leave. So this is like one of the things I, I like about this movie, but I, I agree with you that it creates that particular plot hole. Um, but one of the things I really like about this movie is that unlike the old versions everything doesn't all happen on the same night. Yes. So they're there for multiple nights. And what I like about that is it lets events breathe a little more. It lets there be a little more realism about like, you know, characters could have heard about the stolen money or John Fleming being dead or Bailey being arrested because like it's been a few days. Whereas like in the past versions, you had this ridiculousness of like everybody all comes to the same house all on the same night for their all different contrived reasons and because it's multiple nights we don't have people like coming in and out and back and forth in the one house over and over again going from room to room to room and because we don't have that it kind of reduces the feeling of like farce yeah that the previous versions have like lizzie's still the comic relief but you don't get the sense that like the whole movie is supposed to be funny in previous versions of this story there was a lot of like a big scare happens and then it turns out it was just a moth or something like there's a lot of like people jumping around and they oh it was just this joke right yeah and i think also a lot of time is spent in those other versions on the extra reaction Mm. like it's not just a normal reaction uh and it's not just like a an overreaction it's like over-the-top chewing scenery kind of reaction for comedic effect. Yeah. And in the past movie versions, um, typically you'd only get like one scene that's not at the house. At the very start, showing you like the bat robbing the bank or whatever. And then everything else would be at the house. And here, like we get much more time for the setup of the story. We get to like meet bailey at the bank right and we get introduced to him like normally and same with anderson and we meet like john fleming and dr wells at like the hunting lodge and set up that fleming embezzled the money and then that Wells shot him and and so on so there's like less of these revelations later that feel like they're coming out of nowhere where it's like oh it turns out your gardener was bailey the whole time and he's actually dale's fiance and like these people are related and these people are related like we just know that information and so the focus can be on the mystery of who is the bat which i think the film still does a really good job with by casting a bunch of actors who are all about the same height 
Um, but also making sure that like all of these people have motivations. Like Wells knows that the money's in the house somewhere. So he wants to get at it. And, you know, Anderson has the connection with the bank. And Mark Fleming seems a little suspicious uh, because like... He needs money. Yeah. And he wanted his uncle not to know he was leasing the house and like all these things. And, you know, Warner has like a criminal background and, and whatever, right? Like we stay focused on that and we aren't being constantly bombarded by like new coincidences and yeah. like random things that connect. That being said, I think everything is very paint by numbers. Yes, that's fair. Um, but I still like that everyone feels like an equally convincing suspect. Yeah, it just, it feels very like, you know what you're going to get. Sure. I do think if you hadn't seen previous versions mm -hmm. of The Bat, I really like, so it's still Anderson, right? Yeah. But what I really liked about this version is in past versions, the twist was this whole like, Anderson's around the house, but Anderson is not Anderson. It's the bat pretending to be Anderson and the real Anderson's knocked out and tied up somewhere. And we don't learn that until the very end. And so like the bat was pretending to be Anderson to get access to the house, blah, 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 blah. And that's just like so fucking yeah. over convoluted and just having the bat be Anderson means there's one less contrivance in the story. It means Anderson's motivations make sense. I think that as well, like having the money be this like, Thing that is from a different robbery and isn't also from like the, you know what I mean like it's just the story makes more sense and yeah that makes it more predictable but it also just makes it more satisfying when yeah. like the chips fall into place yeah and it also feels paint by numbers probably because we've seen the original versions uh we've seen quite a few stories that are like this hmm. so it's very much set in that genre it is a good execution of that genre, which also kind of makes it feel paint by numbers, but it's, it's both like a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah. It doesn't have the stylishness of the 1926 version or like the spectacle of the yeah. 1930 version. It doesn't have any of that like Roland West flair. Right. But it's not poorly shot uh, or like entirely without style. Like there's shadows and moving camera shots and things. It's just a very old fashioned style. It's fairly pedestrian, and if anything is old-fashioned, it's definitely, like, the dialogue, which is in a very, like, old-fashioned, exposition-heavy style, where people talk, like, in such a way as to be like, Sarah, my wife who I've been with for 12 years, come with me down this hallway in the house that we've rented, kind of thing, right? Yeah, so that's one thing, looking back at the Bat Whispers, part of the reason why we felt that the balance of horror to comedy was more in line with comedy is both because of like physical acting, but a lot more of that comedy came from speech mm. because it was a sound picture. I think all of the comedy, like comedic elements of this bat come from dialogue, but they're quips. Mm -hmm. They're not like, run on jokes yeah you know? it's it's there aren't gags yeah. it's the comedy comes from the characters right where you're like oh what a character this cornelia and her maid lizzie mm -hmm. are you know what i mean but like it's like oh they're just a couple of like batty old women right like oh they're definitely a gay couple it's 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 the fun of like the fact that the main characters of this movie are all like it's just like a bunch of women in the house and like how they're dealing with things and that's one thing that I really liked. I liked that it was like these two older women that were mainly focused with and that the, we get two younger women. Like it's, it feels like a very female focused movie, even as we sometimes divert over to Vincent Price. Yeah. Like Bailey is in jail the whole movie. Whereas mm -hmm. in the earlier versions, there was this whole thing where like the gardener turns out to be Bailey, who's escaped from jail to be with Dale, who's trying to prove his innocence, blah, 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 blah. And the absence of Bailey means there aren't any like heartthrob romantic leads. And so the thing about the movie that's kind of neat is all of the men in the movie are suspects for being the bat because we know it's not any of the ladies because the bat, unlike in the previous versions where the bat's wearing like, like a, a bat costume here, the bat is just a guy in like a black 
suit and fedora with like a black kind of like nylon mask over his face and like these black claw gloves. Um, and so it's very clearly a man who's just walking around. In fact, very clearly a six foot tall man. Sure. A very tall man. And there's much more of a sense in this movie long before we unmask the bat that he's just a guy. Like we see a lot more of him creeping around the house. He's not really kept as mysterious or off camera as he was in previous versions. And when we see him creeping around, like he's not creeping around in some kind of like otherworldly monstrous way. He's like creeping around like, like a dude creeps around. Yeah. Like just a, just some guy, right? Like when he commits a crime and then like gets out of Dodge and everyone's like looking at the body, like, Oh my God, what's happened? We'll get a shot of the bat. Like, looking behind his shoulder and then like speed walking away. Like he's very clearly some guy, which means that our focus is on who is he and and which of the suspects is he, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that was, I think, an odd choice for this movie is the bat having his own theme. Uh, So the bat theme is by Alvino Ray. And it's very, like, has a surf rock vibe to it with the way the guitar is. It's just like, why are you, why is this here? I get it because you want to be up with the kids, but, like, this is so weird. This doesn't match anything. The only thing that makes sense to me is this. I don't think the audience for this movie was meant to be teens. No. Which is probably why the movie didn't do well, because that's who's going to go see horror movies in 1959. To me, the audience for this movie are like middle-aged women of the kind who read a lot of murder mystery detective fiction. And so who would be like identifying with Cornelia and Lizzie. And so if you think like, okay, the audience is like middle-aged people, and which also then ties into the fact that most of the cast is middle-aged or older, then... The guitar theme for the bat to me makes sense because it's like, oh, rock music. Of course, the music of criminals, (laughs) right? Like, of course, the bad guy is accompanied by electric guitar. Only communists and murderers like electric guitar. Oh, my God. I think it makes less sense. (laughs) But whatever. It's a choice that the movie makes. I think this is probably the best cast we've had assembled for one of these Bat movies. Um, Agnes Moorhead is is basically perfect as Cornelia. Um, Vincent Price is really good in this movie. Once again, taking advantage of his strange ability to say a line in a intimidating fashion, in a sly way, where it's like, you know, he's saying to you like, Good morning, Sarah. But maybe that good morning, Sarah, means I'm going to kill you later. Or maybe it means I know you're the killer and I'm going to reveal your secret later. It's like this this thing that Vincent Price can do where you're not sure if he's the bad guy or the good guy because he's saying every line as if it could mean something else. Um, he's, as always, is handsome in this movie. <laughs> Um, everyone has a very good voice. Yes. Um, Gavin Gordon plays Anderson and he's been acting in Hollywood since like the early thirties. He has a number of qualities that suit him really well in this movie. The first is that he's about the same height as Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. The second is he's got like this craggy older appearance that means that you kind of buy him as like a long time small town police detective, but also he's a little menacing his diction is quite clear, like mid-Atlantic accent that just gives him a bit of a um, edge. Yeah. Uh, he has uh, scars on his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John Sutton, who plays Warner, also like does a great job of being like menacing, but not quite. I want to know his skincare routine. Oh, yeah? Is that weird? Why is that? I don't know. Just like the close-ups on him. It was like... What kind of moisturizer are you using? Is it too oily on you? Like, what is, what are you doing? I do think it's quite clear that, like, all the actors are having a lot of fun. Like, I could watch Vincent Price and Gavin Gordon just, like, talking to each other as if they each suspect the other of being the bat, like, all day. 
Uh, and when Vincent Price gets killed, he has the most hilarious death face. He has a very like basically the tongue is sticking out. It's very yeah, funny. eyes rolled up. Like he has a very like hurt kind of death face. While I think this is the the best movie version of the Bat, and it's a fun watch, it has one very big problem, and that is that it is extremely inoffensive. Yeah, you could tell me this was made for television in 1959 and i'd believe you like you could just show this on tv it would be fine um even most of the cinematography actually tends to keep things center frame as if they're like anticipating it being cropped for tv although there are some like good cool shots here and there but we get these descriptions of how the bat like tears people's throats out with his steel claws But then the movie itself is extremely bloodless. Like the bat just kind of karate chops people's necks. And then everyone crowds around looking at these very much not bleeding bodies and being like, oh my God, the throat's been torn out. Because of that, and also how much like the focus is on the mystery of who is the bat. Like while the house is clearly meant to be like dark and spooky and there are a few like jump scares in the picture where people see something and they scream. I think it's this movie is clearly meant to be received kind of like all in good fun rather than trying to like unsettle or disturb us. I would agree. I think that's why I found it to be old fashioned Mm -hmm. because it's all very old fashioned. Like the hand creeping out from the closet to just miss someone. It's all like you, you could easily do a double feature of this with the bat or the monster the cat and the canary. Yeah. It's it's funny because it's like taking this old-fashioned genre and it's not modernizing it. And it's also not like making fun of it. And mm-hmm. if anything, it's treating it more seriously than those old movies ever did. Like it's doing it the best it's ever done. But it's just like this movie should have come out in like 1949 and not 1959 because it's almost like too old at this point. Sure, but wasn't 1949 like a dead year for horror? Yes, it absolutely was. But I guess what I'm getting at is that with so much of the emphasis placed on the mystery story aspect of who is the bat and that kind of being so well done in this and the like horror scare elements being so kind of bloodless and like amusement park haunted housey, I don't really think this should be counted as a horror movie. I think it should Though it is tepid, because looking at what has been done with the bat Mm. thus far, as you said, this is the most serious. They even go so far as to cast actors to play characters who are trying to be menacing as they speak. Mm -hmm. It's not trying to scare you like William Castle. And I think it's actually really interesting to think about Vincent Price in The Tingler, Mm versus vincent price and the bat mm-hmm. um because both characters you're like are they good are they bad i think he does a little bit more sinister in the tingler but he he does play it the same way mm-hmm. i think everyone believes they are making a horror movie it's it's sort of this weird thing where because of what horror was in 1926 the bat was horror then even though it was very much like also a farce and a comedy But by 1959, a more serious version of the bat doesn't feel like horror anymore because the genre has moved on so much and left this like behind. Yeah. But I'm I'm inclined to like see your point that like if we've got more comedic versions on the list, it feels weird to disqualify a more serious version. But I think you get what I'm kind of saying, right? I do think that like, If this is horror, like what it feels to me is almost as if like Crane Wilbur is looking at the horror movies that are being made and he's like, why does nobody make movies for people my age anymore? And like this is meant to be like so that, you know, like 50 year old women can like go out and see a horror movie that's more like their speed. Yeah. You know, absolutely. It's old-fashioned and tepid compared to what's coming out but it's definitely a like back in my day horror was this yeah yeah creepy hands out of closets okay 
So I didn't have a spot really picked out for this because I didn't really think this should go on the list, but I'm inclined to agree with you that we should rank it. So where are you looking? Ah, uh, so I, I, I do have a range, but I have a spot within a range. Okay. The two previous bat movies, uh, the bat whispers is ranked at number 180. The bat is ranked at number 177. Uh, I think this goes above yeah. as discussed. And I was like, okay, well, how am I going to figure out where this is going to go? What else feels slightly old fashioned as I'm making my way up the list? And my eyes came to Mark of the Vampire from 1935. Okay. That's number 157. Even though it's made in 1935, watching it, it feels like it doesn't quite fit here. I don't know, in that time period. Well, because it's a post-Dracula vampire movie that's still doing the like, oh, there wasn't a monster. It was old man McGillicuddy the whole time, like twist ending, right? Yeah, so that one felt old-fashioned for 1935. So I made that one my floor, but I knew it wasn't going to like go right here because The Ghost of Frankenstein is right above that. Hmm. Um, This movie is better than The Ghost of Frankenstein. (laughs) Going up the list... I saw Return of the Fly at number 149. The bat is not as good as Return of the Fly. If I had to choose which one to watch, I would watch Return of the Fly. I'd agree with that. Within this range, we have kind of a neat selection here. Because on the top of the list, right underneath Return of the Fly is Invaders from Mars. The Vampire's Ghost, which was like Vampire in Africa thing. Yes. Um, And then Le Main du Diable. And those movies were like... They stumbled a bit, but they were trying to do something new. Yeah, they were interesting. Yeah. The Bat from 1959 is not trying to do anything new. It's perfecting what has already been done. Yeah. And I think that puts it above the soul of a monster at 152. The soul of the monster is like this guy is dying in bed and um, people are praying over him and um, he's like, oh, if only I could get better. And then suddenly, like, uh, the devil, as played by Rose Hobart, I believe, shows up. And the biggest scene of that movie is the devil lady walking down the street and, like, street lamps are, like, bursting. Yeah, yeah. The rest of it is fairly tepid, whatever. Uh, and then he wakes up and it was all a dream. Right, yeah. I remember really liking, there's, like, a scene late in that movie where him and the devil are, like, sitting across from each other at like a diner or something and he's trying to get out of this deal he's made but yes i remember being very pissed off with the it was all a dream ending because like i really liked rose hobart as the devil in that movie so i felt the bat should go above that but at the very least it should go above captive wild woman which is right below soul of a monster because that movie while it was captivating is 50 percent another movie yes so I was going to argue for below Soul of a Monster above Captive Wild Woman because I was remembering how much I liked Rose Hobart as the devil in Soul of a Monster. I had forgotten that movie was all a dream at the end. So fuck that. I'm good with your spot putting it above Soul of the Monster. Okay, great. So entering the list at the new number 153 is The Bat from 1959, directed by Crane Wilbur. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over social media at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by telling a friend about the show or a coworker or someone you meet on the bus. Word of mouth is how we grow our audience and get new listeners. If you really like what we do and you have the means, you can financially support the show by heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, and patrons at all levels get access to our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls. For February's poll, we have a selection of shorts. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a clear winner... <laughs> But you never know. Someone might want to come in and, and completely kibosh it. And for January's, 
horror-adjacent bonus episode, we will be covering Death Becomes Her, and that will be the next episode you hear. <laughs> That'll be coming out next week. That's patreon.com slash podcast. So, Ben, after the bonus episode, what will we be watching? Well, we'll we're going to be taking a look at a very indie horror movie, um, such that it was, like, finished in 1958 and kind of played in some theaters in 1958, but didn't really get, like, wide distribution until 1959. It is kind of infamous. Um, it is called The Hideous Sun Demon. Okay, I've never heard of it. Yeah, I've not seen it, so we'll see what it's all about. Great. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.